What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Flip Flop Guy podcast. I'm Andy Mokel, and I'll be your host. Our goal is to have epic conversations with people from all walks of life. There are no talking points that are off the table. It's going to get wild. We hope our guests inspire and motivate you to walk with purpose as we trudge the road of human existence. Enjoy the show. The Bozeman hunting squad. Yeah, I thought Burns would answer that. Bozeman culture yeah question a little differently oh really oh a lot has changed here you know yeah would you say that more has changed in the last five to ten years or more in the last 20 to 30 years five to ten yeah Uh, would you even almost round it up and say it's mostly in the last five yeah I think since I started doing less and less social media it's happened in five probably really yeah, I mean, suddenly, well, we helped Sika move here back in the day, but, you know. And back in the day, you're talking, like, what was that, 2000 and... Have we started yet? Oh, yeah. Oh, this is this is happening. Yeah, but I can I can cut out whatever you don't want on it. No, I would say, yeah, I mean, we were working, <laughs> we with, we were working <laughs> with Gore, <laughs> and, uh, you know, Sika was based in Napa, and it was just one of those things where it was... You know, we started talking to them about what a cool place this was and how all of their people can hunt and test product and do all that. And, you know, they started really looking seriously at bringing it to Bozeman and brought it to Bozeman. And, you know, I think Sims is here, Mystery Ranch, Sitka, you know, Stone Glacier, Onyx, mm-hmm. Meat Eater. Yeah. Uh, Everybody's you know, here now. You know, so it's really, it's a really cool place to live, but it's also brought, which it's good for the economy. It's brought a lot of business to this town, which is great. Yeah. You know. Well, the tech industry also thrives up here fairly well, doesn't it? Yeah, for sure. Tech and, um, you know, I think one of the other, our, one of our biggest things, I think our, actually our biggest economic driver is tourism. Yeah. You know, with the number of people coming in to go to Yellowstone. and Yellowstone's a buzz all the time. As it should be. Right? It's such a great spot. It's so beautiful. I'm fortunate enough. I've never had to wait in a line. Oh, really? To get into Yellowstone, because the time of year when I come here is either like the first week that the park opens, or the last you know week or two that the park is is opened when it's closing. And there's never anyone here, you know, at that time. Yeah, I spent I spent two years living in Cook City, mm-hmm. which is such a it's like a little piece of Alaska, you know, in the lower 48. And I was where I was supervising an ecological research center and. You know, so I was in the park every day. Wait, how did you get into supervising an ecological research center? Just just kind of dumb luck, really. Really? You know, just happened to, I had a friend who was, was working there, you know, and it's it was just a really cool, you know, place. And I wanted to hang out in Cook City, so I went up there and, and hung out with him in the winter. Great ice climbing really close to Cook City. So I went up to hang out with him, and... You know, it's kind of a long story. One thing led to another, and and uh, the A-frame where he was staying caught on fire. Oh. And uh, we were at a place called the Miners, and made it back to made it back to the place. And I went in, you know, with the fire extinguisher and put the put it out, and then ended up getting to talk to the guy that owned it. And you know, I had just gotten my I had just gotten a wilderness EMT um, certification. I went down to Ooh. did that in Yosemite. Which is super cool. And you're then, a you're a well traveled man. Well traveled man. Yeah. And then, uh, <laughs> and I, I just told him I was like, man, you need somebody with my skill set. You know, I can do just about anything. I've got a, 
you know, an EMT certification, you know, I can really help you out. And, and he was like, well, why don't you, why don't you supervise this place? And it was cool because it was a bunch of, you know, graduate students from all around the country doing these programs in Yellowstone. And it was small mammal studies, um, coyote studies. We got to work with Doug Smith on the wolf study. Uh, you know, so I was in the park every single day living in this cool little A-frame, you know, had a snowmobile, ice climbing all winter, skiing. How cool is that to a park that nobody's in? And that part of the park too, you know, just yeah. the access to Lamar Valley and a bunch of different places. And it was super cool, you know? And so I was like the, I lived like three different lives simultaneously. I was, you know, I w supervised the ecological research center. I was an elk hunting guide out of Gardner. And then any other available time, you know, I was on the road climbing, you know, just kind of running around the world. So you were, out, you were, you were blah, 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 guiding and gardener. Were you working for an outfitter or for yourself? I was working for an outfitter. I was working for a Warren Johnson, mm -hmm. Hell's Roaring Outfitters. Yeah. Hell's Roaring is like, they put down more animals than anybody. What is that? I don't know, but... Something upstairs. Who yeah, cares? that and that was I was working in a climbing shop in Bozeman after I'd gotten back from a trip to, up to Alaska, a climbing trip, and I didn't have any money. And the owners of the shop gave me a gave me a job. I called them from Alaska. I was like, I can stay up here for a few more weeks, but I don't have any money. Will you give me a job? And they gave me a job, and I got back. It was it was probably around middle of August or something. Mm -hmm. And I worked in the shop for a while, and this cowboy came in, probably about. <laughs> you know, the first, uh, first week of October or something. Mm -hmm. What and year is this? 2002 or three. Was the firing line still going on or the wolves had kind of gotten Wolves had changed it a lot, you know, at that point it was, uh, you know, it definitely wasn't what it used to be. I think Warren went in 1990, I think he went 91 for 91 on clients, <sighs> you know, so that monstrous the, numbers. Yeah. Just a hundred percent success with that many <laughs> clients is pretty yeah. crazy but this guy came into barrel mountaineering and you know just this cool looking cowboy guy and he was just like i need a headlamp that works well when you're riding horses and i started chatting with him and he worked at dome mountain mm -hmm. and he was uh and that's the count's family right i'm not sure mm -hmm. who was running that um running the outfit back then but he uh um, i asked him Are you guys looking for any any guides and he was like no but i heard warren johnson's looking for a guide and you know i went into the back and i was like hey are you guys cool if i try to get a job on the company phone right now and they were <laughs> like doing what and i was like oh this sounds like i might be able to be an elk hunting guide and i called and i talked to sue johnson warren's wife and she was like i'm gonna be in bozeman tomorrow i'll interview you and i was like sweet you know so she came to town and i sat down with her and and got the got the job like spot on you know i had a bunch of elk hunting experience and been doing it my whole life and didn't know the area though at all and she was like okay you need to be up at the ranch house on this date and they were already running in the backcountry they have a that early backcountry rifle season that starts september 15th so they were in the backcountry and they they told me to meet at the ranch house i think it was like a week before the season started rifle opener so third week of october so i showed up i'd never been in the country at all and and uh i met um warren and sue's son jeremiah and he was like, there's food for you in the fridge. Like, here's a set of binos, handed me a set of binos. And was just like, just drive around and find elk. So I was like, oh, great. Looked in the fridge. There's like seven, like, bologna and cheese mustard sandwiches, like enough for seven days. Mm -hmm. 
and I drove around and I think I found I think I found eight bulls, like eight six points. And the night before the season worn and everybody trailed out of the backcountry and got in. It's like, Well what'd you find? You know, and I didn't know him, you know, at all. And I was like, There's elk here and there's a six point here and a seven point and all this and and he was like, Oh great, you know, we'll get after him tomorrow and the next morning he gave me a he gave me a client, you know, and I had a, a female hunter from Florida and he sent all his other guides to all those spots. Mm-hmm. And every other client, except for mine, he put me in a spot I hadn't even seen. And all those guides killed those bulls. So I think we went eight for nine on opening morning. And uh, from then on, you know, he was just like, I'll give you better spots. <laughs> um, but, you know, you got to cut your teeth somehow. Yeah. I worked for him for four seasons. and What a great introduction. I mean, for you. He's an unbelievable hunter, you know. And to get to follow somebody who's spent his whole life, like, hunting in that area – just the way that I learned so much about horses and he had just bought, he, well, he saved there, there was a thousand head of horses, um, set for slaughter in Canada and it was, um, draft quarter horse crosses. And they were, I think they were three years old when he bought them, but he bought them. They had to quarantine, you know, at the border for, I'm not sure how many months. And then he brought them down. And so when I got there, he basically had broken every cowboy, you know, from Gardner to Livingston to Cody, you know, breaking horses. And mm-hmm. and he was just like, you can pick. Here's a whole bunch of horses right here that haven't been touched. You get to pick three of them, and you have to break them, and you have to do everything, and those are your horses for your time here. And it was a really, really cool experience because I, I had ridden horses, and I, you know, spent a lot of time on the ranches growing up as a kid. And, but I never, I'd never done that kind of work. And that's a really neat, you know, that's a really neat job. Yeah. getting a chance to like you're the only person that's ever been on a horse and they're five years old so they don't have any bad habits but they're also you know wild. they're wild and you're green <laughs> you know so it's uh about as green as it gets yeah it was pretty cool i got bucked off a lot and and was sore a lot but i had these amazing horses and you'd swap out every 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 day you know so every your horse went one day and then he had two days of rest and so i mean it's just can't beat that you know fresh horses every day and yeah the hunting there used to be spectacular too you know it was it was a pretty neat place and wolves crushed the valley they definitely did yeah. they definitely did i think that at the at the height that population was over around twenty four thousand animals you know and i think now thirty you know, five hundred maybe yeah maybe thirty five hundred yeah but, so I'm I'm gonna go back a little bit. Yeah, we kind of have to. We just jumped into the middle, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we're we're gonna stay in the middle still. What was it like having the park at your leisure all winter long, or at least that part of the park? <clears throat> well, they keep the road open from Gardner to Cook City, mm-hmm. so that was really nice. And at the time, you know, I was, you know, really learning how to become a photographer, and so every day I was in the park, you know, and so I got a roll out there i got i knew all the park rangers i knew you know all the people that worked for work for the park and you know i knew all the people that live in cook city not many people spend the whole winter there mm-hmm. um so that that was a really cool experience and get to know like where the best skiing is and where the best ice climbing is and then just get to shoot a bunch of things you know as far as you know photos of animals that you get to know the animals you can be like, oh, that's just that big bull bison, you know, and, and get a bunch of pictures of one animal or, 
you know, you just get to see things, you know, if you're there every day. Really helps. And I'm sure for you as a photographer developing your talent, having access to that probably really helped you form your eye for how you wanted to stage photos, you know? Yeah, I think, you know, for like my style of photography, you know, I think was kind of born out of just like capturing the moment, you know, out of climbing and that kind of stuff, because you just can't redo it. You have to get it in that moment because you can't be like, oh, go back and, and climb that again. Wait, can you hold that position? Hold like that for a second. <laughs> yeah. Hold that rock. Just, so, just like that. Strain your entire body. Yeah. You get yelled at pretty quick, you know, and the same thing with animals. You kind of have to make the, you got to make the best of each opportunity and, you know, you get to do the research and you get to find out like, okay, the sun is hitting good at this time or, you know, I know that big bull dropped his antlers over here. I'm going to see if I can get pictures of him on the ground or you know, all that kind of stuff, or, you know, when, when the lupin starts popping or, you know, arrow leaf balsam root or all those types of things, you get to learn the ecosystem. And, you know, there's nothing better than like being able to just be in the park. I mean, I think my favorite part of it was like, I love to fly fish too. And Slough Creek is a really famous spot in the park for fishing. You know, it's just cutthroats and beautiful country, you know, second and third meadows of Slough Creek are really spectacular and you can get a backcountry permit but i think you can only stay for like four days you know and we got to do a small mammal study in third meadow that lasted six weeks so i got to go in there you know with a research partner and you know do this small mammal study well the small mammal study was i think my grid was like 45 traps and i had a grid and i had to check that grid in the morning and i had to check that grid in the evening so I was left with like 12 hours of time to do nothing but fish, mm-hmm. you know, which is just fantastic to be able to do. You good? I can't stand noise when, I, when I'm doing this kind of stuff. but I don't even know if it's picking it up. Yeah, well, perfect. Yeah, and if it is, it's okay. It's authentic, I you, guess. You're the expert. I don't know if I'm an expert. I'm just living life and having fun, right? Yeah, for sure. So, had you said you'd love fly fishing, so you'd always love fly fishing. Yeah, I grew up. I grew up fly fishing, and and grew up in Helena, Montana. You know. I guess yeah. We'll start there. Let's start in Helena. Why don't you introduce yourself? Tell us who you are. Yeah, my name's Mark Seacat. I'm a Montana native. I was born in Helena, Montana. And my parents moved to Montana specifically to like raise, raise their kids in a, in a place like this and be a, kind of away from it all and, and get a chance to, you know, play outside. You know, both of my parents love to be outdoors and they just said, let's, let's go to Montana, you know, made the, the move in the mid seventies and, you know, just kind of went for it really. So what was that like for you getting to be raised in the wild? I mean, essentially, you know? Yeah. Well, I, I don't didn't know any different Mm -hmm. you know like i'm the oldest i've got two younger sisters and you know i basically went everywhere with my dad you know and in montana at the time you couldn't hunt until you were 12 um and you you could start fishing you know whenever so i really like i really took to it and my dad made me a fly rod when i was four so your dad makes rods well he made a rod you know like one yeah that's you know, awesome. And uh, so he gave me a, a fly rod when I was four. And and so that would have been in February of like 1983. I'm four years old. 
And then that summer, I caught my first fish on a fly rod on the Missouri. And I just always loved it. You know, I just always went. And my dad was always fishing with somebody, and I was always in the back seat. And, you know, he just took me a ton, you know. And it was always, like, I don't ever remember, like, spin fishing, you know. Like, my kids now are like, let's go catch some bass. And I'm learning along with them. I was always a, was always a fly rod in my hand. Um, so that was... Yeah, that's kind of how I got started was really loving fishing. And then my dad, like, you know, met a rancher in the Tobacco Ritz, you know, which is it's about an hour and a half, you know, south of um, south of Helena, you know, an hour west of Bozeman and cool mountain range. And there was an article in the independent record in the Helena independent record back in the day that was like elk hunters wanted, you know, we have too many elk running around in the Tobacco Ritz and. So my parents went out there and met a great ranching family and just became really close friends and ended up now that the owner of the ranch is my godfather. And like, they used to take me out there and drop me off on a Friday and, (laughs) and like, I'd spend the whole weekend with him, you know, learning what ranching was about and running around and they'd pick me up and, you know, I went out there a lot and still go out there all the time and take my kids out there. And, you know, the hunting is not quite what it used to be, um, but there's still elk on the property every year and you know it's a fun place to go check out and how do you feel like getting to have that opportunity changed the way that you were as a kid as far as responsibility and respect and and all that kind of stuff well i think it it really taught me the the love for being outside and the love for that camaraderie of hunting experiences and you know i was never the rule in our family was always like if it was a legal animal and it was in front of you and you had a tag like you didn't pass anything up you know like a we basically had wild game it was you know whitetails mule deer antelope and elk meat and that's what we ate you know was that i've always been put we didn't buy a side of beef or anything like that my parents had a big garden you know and we had wild game my mom canned and everything and so I really just like fell in love with those experiences. I can remember being super young and like jumping from step to step, following my dad, you know, in the snow. And I think it kind of shaped who I was. You know, I wasn't the kind of kid in high school that like went to the dances and <laughs> did that kind of stuff, right? Like maybe later on, but you know, I can remember like freshman, sophomore year, like every weekend I was fishing, you know, or hunting when the season, you know, when the season was on. You know, I was like the quarterback of my high school football team and we'd play a game on Friday night and I'd jump in the truck with my dad and we'd drive to the tobacco rights to hunt Saturday and Sunday. Bail out immediately after the game. As soon as the game was over, like, boom, you know, just like. And now was your dad a hunter prior to that or? Yeah, my dad, my dad grew up in Florida, um, you know, and he was a hunter, you know, deer, whitetail deer, turkeys. He loved to fish. You know, and coming to Montana was really, you know, what just got him into it, you know, Mm -hmm. and like my dad, like, yeah, he was never, it was never about like a trophy. It was always about like, you know, filling tags, filling tags. And, you know, even in college, like I can remember, like, I think like freshman or sophomore year of college, like I shot a calf, like on opening morning, Mm -hmm. you know, my general tag, you know, which is like, well, my elk season's done. Yeah. You know? just it is what it when is. you notch a tag early were you ever like man now i don't get to hunt the rest of the season no i always went with all my buddies too you know i had a bunch of college friends 
I had a bunch of college friends who, you know, one one buddy from Montana who grew up hunting, you know, and then a whole bunch of friends that didn't, you know. So it was always we were going, like, oh, let's get this guy's first deer, or let's go like try to kill an elk, or all that kind of stuff. And you know, I think a lot of it, you know, growing up and hunting the ranch, it was like that was where we went, you know. And we had our spot out in eastern Montana where we went antelope hunting, and we always did a, you know, trip out to the CMR to hunt mule deer and. And then we always went to the ranch to hunt elk, you know. And so I just would always go there. And, and I think it was when I was, like, f- 14. You know, I killed my first elk at 12. I killed another one at 13. My first, like, bigger bull was when I was 14. And on that one, we took the horses up into the high country. I was like, I want to go up this drainage. And they were like, why? And I was like, I don't know. I just want to go up there let's go up there and and so we went up on horseback and my dad and i like you know bailed off the horses together and i shot like a 320 inch bull and and he shot the one standing next to it you know which was like a raghorn and that was what i was like they're in the mountains you know they're way up there like that got me like leaving the ranch yeah. you know which you know started climbing peaks and doing that kind of stuff and i was always looking for elk and that really got you into the mounting hunting aspect of it. Yeah, I just started roaming, you know, and it's like, oh, because that's the biggest bull I had ever seen, you know, and he was he was way up in the mountain. So I was like, the biggest ones are way up there. <laughs> so I just started, you know, doing that kind of thing and, and trying to trying to find them, you know, and it led me all over the different mountains. And then I went to school. I went to school on a um, football scholarship to Colorado and broke my thumb really bad got a couple screws in here and the one thing that it affects is throwing a football but at that point you know i was 18 years old and it was the first season that i hadn't killed an elk in my life going to school in colorado is that depressing i think it, i was like i want to go to colorado because you know it's a cool place and there's great elk hunting and i mean college athletics and hunting especially with fall sports just don't mix you know and i that does not go hand in hand i had these grand visions of being able to like you know hunt deer and and everything in colorado and that just didn't happen so when i got hurt i could have stayed and and played receiver you know on on a you know my full ride scholarship and i ended up uh coming back to bozeman and it was just first day of classes in in bozeman i caught 26 fish on the gallatin (laughs) you know so i really like i was stoked to be here there was always this allure to this place you know like helena is a little bit it's not the mountains aren't as dramatic there's a lot of great things to do but bozeman had like steep mountains and you know big big fish and a lot of really good rivers you know and they were close you know the climbing was great so i came to school here and just fell into the right crowd of people and, you know, got a chance to do, just got a chance to do a, um, you know, a bunch of stuff with a lot of really great people. Yeah. So at what point did you end up picking up a lens? Um, I took a class in high school. I had this really, really cool teacher. Um, and I, it was called applied design. And you got to do all kinds of things, you know, metalworking. You got to do all kinds of, you know, art and that kind of stuff, which I had never been an artist and I'd never done anything like that. And I remember, like, I took the first year of the class and I really liked it. And I was like, oh, that's such a cool, he's such a cool teacher, you know. And one of it, one of the um, parts of the class was photography, 
you know and so i got to start taking some photos and doing that and then that summer i think i was up in the tobacco roots and i like climbed up hollow top peak which is the you know tallest peak in the mountains and my teacher's name rod boyer was in the summit journal and i was like he's so amazing you know he's he's been up on this mountain so i took that class every year you know in high school and just continued to do that kind of stuff and take pictures and my parents you know like i remember shooting on like you know little tiny like point and shoots and and then so were you running digital or film film yeah and you know i never like i'm a child i was born in 79 you know so like when I started getting into photography, it was just straight film. And then, you know, it was like black and white stuff, like T-Max 400. and Elford. That was know, my favorite black and white film. Yeah. And, and so I just kind of learned with it and did it. And just, I always had like, I never had, you know, like a SLR, you know, it was, that was a lot of money, you know? And, mm-hmm. and my parents were the type of parents that if you wanted something like you, you had to earn the money to do it, you know, like my first set of waiters, you know, I tied woolly buggers for my dad's friends, you know, and like paid for all my own stuff with that. And so like, I, I just kind of got into that rhythm of like, you had to work for, for what you wanted to do and started doing it. And then my, it would have been my sophomore year, but really my first year in Bozeman, you know, I saw that there, there was an, a photography class. Well, you had to be in the photography and film program to even get into classes but if there was openings in the class you could you could show up early and sign up for them so like I was like I'm gonna be the first person there and of course I like waited in line for like eight hours and I was the first person there and there was only five spots and I think there was four people that showed up to sign so I took a I took a class my sophomore year photography 101 and it was all film and you were in the lab and in the dark room and you know i never put more time into one class i've got a a major in business finance and economics and like photography i was just i loved it you know i was originally pre-med took that photography class and i met like one of the cool things about the photography class was you got to interact with like seniors that were in the program and the lab was open if you had a class you could go to the lab and I basically just lived in the lab. <laughs> and one of the guys, I, I knew it was going to be the only class I could take without switching my major. And one of the guys, there was this really cool old couple. I can't even remember their names. But they were doing all kinds of amazing stuff outside. And I started asking them questions. And they asked me, like, well, what do you love to do? And I was like, I love to fish. I love to hunt. I love to be outside. And they were like, man, I tell you what, all you really need to do You've got all the skills that you're learning from this class. Like, all you really need to do is buy as much Fuji Velvia 50-speed film as you can. And at that point, you know, like, I'm a poor college kid. I don't really have any money, you know. And all I'm doing is trying to, like, take my classes and get good grades and, like, think about what I'm going to do later on in life. And, you know, I wasn't spending money on girls. I wasn't spending money on beer, anything else. I was buying Fuji Velvia. <laughs> and so, and, and that was a, that was an expensive proposition. You know, it was one of those things where you like every single time you hit the shutter from buying the film to getting the film developed, it cost a dollar. 
that's what it was. So you were really careful, you know. And you, you had to be meticulous with 36 shots, man. It was like you're thinking about it, right? Mm-hmm. So after my sophomore year, I decided I was going to, like, take some time for myself. And I went, to, uh, I went to New Zealand, and I went there for six months. And I left, in, I left as soon as my last test was over, like, first week or second week of December. And I flew to New Zealand. I bought 40 rolls of Fuji Velvia. And that wasn't enough. I think I, I, I was really meticulous. I, think, oh, I don't really? think I shot at all. <laughs> um, but I went down there and I bought a car. And, and the only thing I wanted to do there was fly fish. You know, and I just went and learned rivers and met some cool people. And, you know, I, I, I got to the South Island. I went up to the North Island for two weeks, bought a car, checked out some areas around Lake Taupo, you know, bigger rivers, you know. And I was really looking for that, like, intimate backcountry experience, like sneaking up on big browns. And I drove down to the South Island and went to an area called Murchison. And there's a river called the Buller River. And I just sat on the banks of the river one day. I was, like, eating my lunch, and I wasn't having very much success, and I was starting to get frustrated. And I saw this guy came down, and, you know, I was just watching him and watching what he was doing, and he was catching big fish. And so I I finally was just like, you know, I'm just going to go talk to him. Take in mind, I'm 20 years old, and fly fishing is one of those intimidating things. You don't just, like, really walk up to people like, will you teach me what you're doing type of thing. (laughs) And... We sat by the river and, and had a nice chat, and he was just like, you know, if you if you want, like, you can you can come. You can stay at my place tonight. I'll line you out on a bunch of different areas that you should go check out. You know, what you're doing is really awesome. You're young. Just, like, you can backpack all over the place and, and get into some cool areas. And so I was like, sure. And we drove up to his house, and he lives in a little town of Richmond outside of Nelson on the, like, northern end of the South Island. And, like, we drive through town, and we just keep going up the hill, you know, and the houses keep getting nicer. And, like, we get up to this house that's got a five-car garage, you know, with, like, sports cars and, like, an area to land a helicopter and, like, a bunch of stuff. And I was just like, geez, you know, what do you do? He's like, ah, you know, he's like a surgeon there on the South Island in New Zealand. And before I made it into the house, he came by and he was just like, I'm just going to warn you. I have five daughters, so watch out when you go inside. <laughs> and that was a really lucky, lucky person to meet, you know, because he was like, he had been living there his whole life and he loved to fish and he didn't have anybody. His daughters didn't like to fish. So it was like, you need to be on this river on these dates. That's when the cicada hatch is happening or all this kind of stuff. And through meeting him, he had it mapped out. He was dialed. Yeah. yeah. And through meeting him, I think I got to go on like nine helicopter trips. And I didn't have to spend a penny. You know, I got to do some hunts. I hunted red stag in Fiordland, like completely free range wild red stag. You know, in Fiordland, I, I, I shot like a, a small stag, you know, in the middle of like Fiordland's like dense rainforest, like ferns everywhere with like an open sided World War II gun. Wow. You know, it was a pretty neat experience. Um, and that one really, like, so at 20, like that trip, like changed my life. It was like, I don't, I can do a lot of things on my own. You know, now I went to New Zealand for six months and, you know, now like anything's possible, mm-hmm. you know? And so that's really, you know, that's kind of where I found the love for photography. And I happened to meet, I was in a hut 
and uh, a bunch of Americans on a guided fishing trip flew in, and they were all, I think the guide was, um, there was a New Zealander and an American guy, and they were from Traverse City, Michigan, and they brought with them this, like, famous fly fishing photographer, and his name was David Lambrotten, and David does these, uh, like, he calls them fly fishing dreams calendars. And I had saved up, and at the time I had like a Nikon F one hundred, and he had the same kit as me, you know, the same stuff, and and I was just like, man, if this guy can, he's making his living traveling around the world taking pictures, like, geez, I could do that, you know, that seems like a good job, and and so that was really life changing. I came back and I was like, I knew I didn't have to like take more classes. I know I could you know, teach myself to what I needed to do to become a photographer. But I figured that like, if I was going to be a photographer, I was always going to be running low on money. So I better, better figure out how to manage it. So that's what pushed me for, away from being, you know, pre-med into business finance and economics. Um, yeah. And then, it, you know, from there it was just, you know, I, yeah, I kind of, I turned down like interviews in New York city and Chicago and the different trade markets and, you know, packed up in a car, you know, right after graduation of school and drove out and, you know, lived with a buddy in Washington and we climbed like all the volcanoes and everything. Just our goal was we wanted to climb Denali someday. And so we just started climbing all those mountains. We roofed his neighbor's house, you know, for like five days to have enough money for the entire summer. So the rest of the summer, we just, you know, drove around and climbed and did all that. And and then I think the next big one, I went down to like South America. I was going to do like a nine month trip to South America. And I went down there and I, I wanted to climb Aconcagua, which is, uh, I think it's right at, it's, tw I think it's 22,800 some feet, highest peak in the Andes, tallest peak in South America. So I went down there by myself and I was like, I'm just going to climb this mountain, sell all my climbing gear. And then I'm going to go and like, I had stashed a bunch of fishing stuff and I was going to go down to Patagonia and just do a tour and like find my way back to, find my way back to the States, you know, after however long I could, you know, make it last. And in the process, after I summited Aconcagua, I made it back down to my, like my highest camp. It was at 19,000 feet and there was a big storm that came in and I got stuck there for a couple of days and by the time the storm broke, when I was ready to go down, I, you know, I was just kind of in a, you know, a little bit of a hypoxic state, you know, <laughs> like I hadn't had enough oxygen in a while and I was struggling to eat and all that kind of stuff. And I broke down my tent and, or I broke down all my stuff and I, you know, the, they have what's called the Vienta Blanca, the white wind. And it's just where this wind comes up and it's just, it's a hundred miles an hour, like crazy wind that hits this mountain. And it was really blowing hard and so I put all my gear into it. I had an old like Dana Designs Astroplane backpack that I took on all my trips. It was red and I'd painted it. I'd painted it with spray paint black <laughs> in New Zealand so I wouldn't spook the fish, you know, as you're sneaking along the edge. I strapped, I remember taking a carabiner to like the tent and like, you know, clipping it to the pack so it wouldn't blow away and I got everything in the pack and I went back into the, the tent and I still have it. It's, probably one of the best tents ever made it's a bibbler fitzroy what was interesting about those tents it's single wall and all the poles are on the inside and so it just basically the poles hold the whole thing really taut and 
there's these little tiny plastic clips that hold the joints where the where the poles go across and i couldn't i couldn't get those little clips undone with my big like mountaineering gloves on so i pulled my mountaineering gloves off undid all the clips and then the mistake i made was not putting my gloves back on before i took the poles down so I immediately started taking poles and breaking them down, right? And those poles had been at elevation at 19,000 feet for like three or four days. Wow. So they were cold. And I basically, in the period of a one minute of exposure to like grabbing those poles and breaking them down, third degree frostbite on eight of my fingers. No way. So, and I knew like in the moment I was like, something's, I'm not sure what I just did, but my fingers were starting to get numb. And I loaded everything into the pack, and I started my way back down to the base camp. And the base camp was was at 13,000 feet. And I remember going down the mountain and just getting knocked off my feet multiple times by the, the white wind, you know, would come through and just knock me down. By the time I got down to base, I was, I was pretty delirious, you know, and I knew my hands were hurt. And when I made it into base camp, and of course it was like my mindset was like, don't take the normal route that everybody else does. Like take a, a harder route. Let's make this more difficult. Let's make it a little harder, you know? <laughs> and so I was on, I, I can't even remember if it was the North side of the mountain, but I was on the side where not many people go to. And there's two base camps, like 90% of the people that climb Aconcagua do one route. I think it's called the standard route. And I did the Polish glacier. So I drop back down, I get down, down to the base camp and I, I was really intent on, you know, perfecting Spanish and learning Spanish. So before I started up on the climb, I got to know the people that worked at base and I made it back to the base camp. I was like, something's wrong with my hands, you know? And, and, you know, they helped and they like immediately my gloves were off and, and you could tell by the looks that these people had that like, it wasn't good. Something wasn't good, you know? And, and they had a, you know, a solution of beta nine and I put my hands in there and like it really started, the pressure was really starting to hurt. And luckily I did get a medium because it was a, it was like a three day trek from base camp back to civilization to get to like a little outpost town. So like I was sitting there and they were like, Mark, there's a, a food transport coming in tomorrow. We're going to get you on the helicopter back. And I'm, I met this really, just another really cool person and, and she helped me get back and they took me to the military hospital on the Chilean Argentinian border and they were like yep third degree frostbite like you know you can stay here we would recommend that you like get back to the states and like better health care as quickly as thank possible thank god for that helicopter it was pretty amazing so i i had summited on um december 21st so it was the the solstice it would have been the summer solstice down there winter solstice up here in um, the northern hemisphere and I didn't get a chance to leave. I got to spend Christmas with this woman's family. She was a mountain guide. Um, I got to spend Christmas there with her family. But it was like the most intense pain you've ever had because what happens is that the end of your finger swells up, you know, and it it basically you look like E.T. You get these, these great big blisters that cover the whole end of where the frostbite happened. And for me, it was, it was you know, thumb to ring finger on both hands. Um, and it's just super painful, you know, and I was spending, so I spent Christmas in Mendoza, Argentina, and then like, I had to get back to the States. Well, I'd like, you know, I was bootstrapping it to get down there. I think I paid $640 for like via three airlines to make it 
down to Argentina. Mm-hmm. So, and then like trying to like trying to get back, you know, on a ch- change of ticket. Cause I hadn't even, I hadn't even like bought a return ticket, you know, trying to get back was a pain to try to figure all that stuff out. Meanwhile, my parents have no idea like what I just did. They have no, they're like, Oh, you're going down to South America. Have fun. Have fun. Go do it. Like, that'll be great. You know, grand idea. And, uh, you know, like I can remember flying back and I was able to get a ticket into Salt Lake and my parents came down to pick me up and, you know, I couldn't undo a button. I couldn't unzip a zipper. You know, I like. So you were com- lost mobility of your hands completely. Completely. That, I mean, yeah. You can't do anything when the, when these these eight fingers are messed up, right? So. Well, especially I, your thumb. I mean. Oh, you know, and. That's what makes mankind. Special, right? <laughs> yeah. So, it was a that was a big that was a big experience because. You know, I remember my mom, like, being like, oh, my gosh, you know, like, what were you doing? What happened? You know, and, like, it was a, that was a challenge because I came back, and there's really just not much you can do. You know, I read a lot of of stories about Inuits and, like, what they do when people get frostbite and cold water immersion and all this stuff. And I saw a specialist in, in Helena, and I can remember, you know, if somebody tells you you can't do something depending on the person like you usually take that as a challenge or you just don't do it and <laughs> yeah. i'm definitely that oh you said I can't oh do i that. can't can they and i remember going into this guy and he was like well there's a couple bad things like you'll you'll never be able to play a stringed instrument and you'll never you know do cold weather mountaineering again you know and i was like this is in so this is in by the time i went and saw him it was probably late december of 2002 and in may of 2003 i was learning how to play the mandolin and had summoned denali which is you know the coldest so you did get to go and complete your dream of summoning denali i made it back up there and like went with a buddy a super good buddy of mine the buddy that i lived in washington with and we went and climbed or you know not the easiest route on denali of course not and uh sounds like you like the the harder way not the easier softer for way. sure for sure <laughs> um the path of most resistance yeah so that like i guess that takes us into you know now i'm in 2003 so coming back from that trip meets up with the story of working in the climbing shop mm-hmm. you know so then i was then all of a sudden you know i'm a i'm a like i was guiding elk hunters right like and i had on like filson pants and, you know, a set of chinks that I made out of leather and Filson jackets and yellow plastic Koflak mountaineering boots, mm-hmm. you know. And, like, I remember one client came to my boss after after a morning elk hunt, and she was like, my guide's wearing ski boots, <laughs> you know. And he was like, those are his climbing boots. They're really warm, I guess. I don't know, you know, type of thing. But I lived, a, I was really interesting. And it was an interesting time to be in that area, right? Because, yeah. like. You know, with the wolf reintroduction happening in 95, you know, in 2003 on, you know, it was, it was pretty crazy. You know, I got a chance, I got a chance to guide uh, one season of the late bull hunt that was there, which was a spectacular, spectacular hunt, you know, and four clients, I took four, four clients and averaged like the average of the four bulls was 382, you know, and it was a spectacular time, but it, you know, it changed so much, but I was also on the other side, right? 
like I was on the like the biologist type side in the park you know so it was a really interesting time to be in that area and get to work some very different jobs with people that typically don't see eye to eye at all you know so I think that was a good experience too I feel like more so today biologists and hunters see eye to eye compared to back then it was completely polar opposite worlds yeah I would say to a certain extent you know part of it was that you know in all reality like what was happening to Warren's business was because we decided to introduce wolves which I think wolves are great animals they're beautiful Mm -hmm. you know everything's got its place obviously like the the ecosystem was out of balance yeah well you know you start carting in elk from Colorado to rebuild the population after slaughtering all the uh, predators in the area you're going to end up with a problem eventually yeah and and but what I saw was I saw a guy whose business was based on taking elk hunters and taking a lot of them, you know, and it's just slowly like changed it. And they still have a great business, you know, and he was able to adapt, you know, he started, he started looking and okay, I have all these horses. Let's take, I'll take tourists on trail rides and, and do that kind of stuff. He did a really good job of adapting, you know, but it was a, uh, their elk hunting is still really, really good down there. It's I mean, still for really what good. he's doing. Yeah. You for have to draw doing. it now. Yeah. You know, the, it used to be where he could have a, you know, he could have all of his clients book, pay deposits and everything because they knew they were getting a tag. Well, and there was the outfitter tag system back then. Yeah. And he knew he was getting a tag. Now all those guys have to draw, mm-hmm. you know, and so it's really hard after the fact to get somebody to, like, come pay for a guided hunt, especially a resident. You know, residents aren't buying guided hunts in their home state very often. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's. It's been really interesting to watch the evolution of that particular area with with the wolf population and everything that has gone on down there. Did, were you ever familiar with the book Playing God in Yellowstone? I asked Brendan this earlier today. No. You should check it out. Who wrote that one? I hope I don't butcher this, but if I remember correctly, um, the fellow who wrote it was the president of the Yellowstone Historical Society. And he ended up getting, if I remember correctly, bullied out of the Yellowstone Historical Society because he started asking too many questions when he started looking at the history and everything that had gone on from the Park Service. Wow. It's a really, really amazing read. You should check it out. Yeah, Playing God in Yellowstone. Yeah, it's on Amazon. You can't get an audible book of it. It's on Amazon, though, for sure. That's cool. The... uh um, so Doug Smith was like the, the head of the, you know, the wolf study and the wolf reintroduction program. And, you know, I can remember we were sitting in the, we were sitting on the, I think it's the Eastern side of the road in the Lamar, like doing, doing our coyote study one morning. And all of a sudden, you know, this pack of wolves goes running across Specimen Ridge, you know, headed towards like the Slough Creek area. And I remember looking at him through the spotters and being like, there's not a single there's not a single caller in that group like you know and like we had ray cal radios and we could communicate with everybody and it was like yeah we're looking at a pack of wolves right now that's like there's no radio callers in this thing and they're headed towards the slough creek densite and i and i don't know if they'd ever been seen before but now like going back and reading some of the books like decade of the wolf you know that doug smith wrote or some of these other ones you hear about this unnamed pack and that was the, like one of the first spottings of this unnamed pack. And what they did, there was a there was a member of the Slough Creek pack that got kicked out, went off, started his, his own crew, his own pack, 
came back to the Sioux Creek Den site. And took it over. And killed everything. They killed them all. They, like, killed all the every wolves. wolf, every pup, everything, and took over that area. Talk about a grudge. Man, can you believe that? I can. It's unbelievable. Dude, wolves are phenomenal animals. Yeah, they're super cool. I buy tags every year for them, you know, and I, I always only see them at, like, 600 yards during <laughs> archery season, you know. And I don't, I don't know if I could. I mean, I probably could, you know, because they're – like I love elk it's more than just about anything. It's important to the balance. Anything, for sure. Yeah. They're smart. You know, it's tough. They're really to smart. I know I've been around plenty of wolves um, from seeing fresh tracks in the snow, but I've never seen a wolf. Not not in Montana. I've never seen a wolf. Yeah. We, we both hunt some country, mm-hmm. you know, on that one spot that, you know, I've seen them in there a couple times. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, like, you'll see, like, you know, a couple females or some young males and then all of a sudden you see the alpha male and you're like wow yeah so much bigger talk like about giant giant animals for sure but yeah so i guess like the so from guiding i had i wrote a story about the car that i bought in new zealand this old <laughs> subaru and i um i submitted it to this like story contest it was like a tell us about your car story contest or something like that <laughs> in outside Bozeman magazine. And the, uh, I won a pack from this company and I lived here. I'd never even heard of the company, um, called mystery ranch. And I was like, wow, you know, I'm like, who, what is this company? And did a little bit of research and found out it was Dana Gleason's new company. And I went in there to like get my new pack. And there was this long haired hippie, bearded guy that was a you just tell he was a dirty hippie climber you know (laughs) and he was he was like the sales guy there and we went in i went in and i was you know getting whatever pack that i'd won and i was looking at some products in there and i was like well what's that pack for and he was like oh that's a military prototype that we are making to hold ammo canisters you know like the 50 50 round you know those heavy ammo canisters and you can hold like three of them or two of them and there I was like, wow, that's, that is sweet. That would be perfect for an elk quarter. <laughs> and he was like, what's an elk quarter? And I was like, oh, it's like a quarter of an animal. It's a whole leg. You know, he's like, well, how much do they weigh? And I was like, oh, you know, on a really big bull here in Montana, they could weigh 80 pounds, you know? And he's like, oh, that's cool. Great. Well, here's your pack, you know? And I ran into that guy, like, I ran into that guy, like, maybe two and a half months later at, you know, some friends had a potluck dinner and he came walking in and and it was like we were the only two single guys like at this place you know and it's like a bunch of couples and so we started chatting about climbing and everything else it's like let's go for a climb you know and we went and climbed the northeast of mount cowan and like it was just like oh man we could be good climbing partners like let's start let's start doing this and and he was he was the sales director at mystery ranch and uh we just became friends and you know at the part of the reason why I stopped guiding was because there just wasn't any elk anymore, you know, and it just didn't, it didn't really like in the backcountry season, which was a great time to be, you know, in the backcountry, like there just wasn't a lot of elk and they were moving for the park pretty quick, you know, mm-hmm. once the shooting started. So you spend a lot of time back there and, and just wasn't a lot of, wasn't a lot of elk to hunt. And, you know, I ended up like, you know, quitting the job. And, and I just didn't know what to do. And, and my buddy, like, was like, well, 
man, I'm living in my car. Like, why don't we just save money and climb as much as we can? I was like, sounds good to me. Like, that sounds great. Like, and I had a car at the time, you know, and I remember it was like a big deal. It was like $238 a month for my car payment. And I was like, you know, how am I going to make this work? I only have so much money and, you know, I got to figure this out. And so I just basically started like, I went and parked my car at my parents' house in Helena and like moved into a Honda Element with this crazy, you know, <laughs> dirty hippie guy. And he was like, well, let's convince, you know, Mystery Ranch that, you know, that you need to be an employee. So I wrote a whole business plan and I was like, I should be your like hunting guy. Like, you're, you're, I could market these packs for hunters. And they were like, we don't even sell to hunters. And I was like, oh, okay, well, I'm just going to, you know, I don't really have anywhere to go. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to take the sales guy's name's Andrew Crow. I'm just going to take him hunting, you know, and he was a, his family was from Arkansas and he grew up duck hunting and all that. And he had never really been hunting out West. And I was like, let's get a tag. You're a resident. Let's go hunting. So we started rolling around, you know, hunting together. And I just started taking pictures of their packs, you know, in the field. And then I would go and mystery ranch where it was located at the time. It was a really small building. There was a small sales floor and then, you know, two desks in the back, you know, six people sewing. And then this little corridor that led to the two owners office. Dana um, Gleason and, and Renee and I was like man I'm just going to set up my slide scanner and like everything else like right in between the sales floor and their office and I'm just going to work on my photos every day and like if they stopped because they just knew I was his buddy you know and like I just came there every day you know and they were like when are you going to leave and I was like I don't have anywhere else to go you know I'm just <laughs> Girl, gonna, I ain't going nowhere I'm just going to work on these things and like I was submitting photos and doing stuff for Patagonia and some other companies, you know, making just enough money to like make ends meet, you know, when you don't have any, you don't have a car payment, you don't have a house payment, you don't have a rent. All you worry about is food. Right. And so just kept doing that and and kept doing it. And then all of a sudden one day, a couple hunters came in from out of state into the sales floor and Andrew came and got me. Of course I had like headphones in like, scanning slides and doing all that and editing fun. photos and and he was like he was like there's a couple hunters in here come talk to them and so i went out there and talked to them and i sold each of them a nice frame a crew cab and a 6500 bag and that's like 1200 dollars per man of backpacks so like a 2400 dollars sale and dana like was sticking his head into the sales floor and he was like this kid might be on something. Wait a minute. And he was like, okay, Let's I'm going to revisit this idea. I'm going to give you a job. And I was like, sweet. I thought for sure. Okay. Like I'm now I'm the hunting guy. Right. Mm-hmm. Nope. Like, so he's like, we're going to give you a job. And I was like, I'm out of money. Like I got a car payment due in like a week and you know, it's $238. Like I need a job now. I don't care what it is. Like I'll be the janitor. So, I convinced him to buy my car from me. He loves Subarus. Mm-hmm. He bought my car, I think, for like $4,000 more than what it blue booked at because it had so few miles and it was in nice condition. He bought my car, so suddenly my bank account was padded. $4,000, you know, like I can go for years on $4,000. And um, he bought my car and gave me a job for 8 bucks an hour, and I was the janitor at Mystery Ranch. <laughs> And then I just started cleaning the place up, you know, 
you don't like it doesn't take very long if you're motivated to like clean a place right so clean the place and then i went in and started organizing stuff and post so which is like where you put pads and shoulder pads and all that kind of stuff together and stamp out plastic pieces started organizing things and you know they'd let me sew and let me do all kinds of stuff and and you know just basically turn me loose and it wasn't very long but, you know at that time like most marketing was done one of two ways it was either on forums or um this is like pre instagram pre magazine facebook print. magazine and print right so you had to write you had to have photos that went with articles and you had to like you know get to know get to know people and and do it that way we didn't have any money to like market or anything like that um and i think at a certain point you know we'd sold a few packs and I was starting to get on to some of these forums and talk about it. And Dana was like, okay, I'm just turn you loose. They didn't have any big military contracts back then. Like it was all like hoping to get that. And I think within a year of moving out of like sewing and building backpacks, you know, within a year, just turned loose on the forums and like taking mystery ranch to some hunting shows and doing that. We'd sold $1.1 million with the hunting packs. So he was like, okay, like, let's go, let's do this, you know? And I think the biggest break that I had in the industry was with Sika. And I remember when Sika first came out, it was 2006 or 2005 or 2006. And I remember getting a catalog and two of the mystery employees, Andrew. So the sales guy's name's Andrew Crow. He married my sister. So now he's my brother-in-law. So that's how that story wraps up. Um, but Andrew and a guy, Luke Buckingham, had met a guy named John English, who was like the attorney for Sika, And they traded him a nice frame in a 6,500 for two pairs of mountain pants. And both of those guys are like itty-bitty dudes, you know, like size 32 waist, you know. And every Tuesday, we get a shipment from Sika of a pair of brown size 32 mountain pants. So I started looking at them and I've got like, you know, eight weeks of size 32 mountain pants in here. I'm like, there's a problem, you know, like number one, the pants don't fit me. <laughs> so I can't wear <laughs> main them. problem right there. That's the main problem. Number two, like it must be an automated shipping thing or something's happening. So I called the customer service line and I asked for like the shipping guy and he was a young kid. I can't remember his name. And I told him, I was like, hey, there's like eight pairs of mountain pants sitting here, and they keep coming every Tuesday. And he was like, oh, geez, like, I got to get that fixed. Like, oh, you could tell he was really worried. And I was like, don't sweat it, man. I will send them all back to you. But here's, I need two things. I need a pair of size 34s, and I need the two founders' emails. Because I got the first SICA catalog, and it was like, it was all about, like, you know, mountaineering technology for the hunter. And I was like, I'm a mountaineer, you know, I've climbed some of the biggest mountains or so far. I've like climbed the highest peak in, in North America and the highest one in South America. Like I'm a mountaineer. I'm also a hunter, right? So I'm sitting on all this, this content of these great big bulls guiding in gardener, you know, bulls and deer that I'd killed, you know, all these amazing mountaineering photos and everything. And I had the right resume to like reach out to them. And so he gave me uh, Jason Harrison and Jonathan Hart's email addresses. You know, that was like gold, right? Like yeah. 
I've got the email addresses to this, the founders of this brand new company. And I send an introduction email with like my top 10 photos and they responded like that, like immediately. And which was really cool because it was like just about to like start up hunting season in Montana. So I got like all the gear that I could ever imagine from them and everything for Andrew. So I had somebody to take pictures of and we went and took pictures of the stuff all fall and you know, got it, got the photos to those guys. And, and, uh, they were like, you should come to the archery trade show. And I'd never been to a hunting trade show ever. Mm -hmm. And they were like, you should come to the ATA show in Indianapolis. You know, it'd be great to meet you. And you could see, like, you could see all your stuff on our booth. We're going to have a big booth. And so Dana was like, let's go, let's, let's go do it. Yeah. What do we have to lose? So Andrew and Dana and I showed up to ATA and, uh, Sitka was a big thing back then. So this is probably like either January of 2006 or 2007. And it was Sitka's first ever booth. And they had a huge booth. You know, it was this giant booth. And every photo was either a photo I had taken or a photo of me. You know, and it was a, it was a pretty, I didn't even have business cards. You know, it was a pretty sweet opportunity because, you know, you're walking around and, you know, it's like, there's Randy Ulmer and there's Chuck Adams and there's Dan Evans. And, you know, I met this, I met this guy, Brendan Burns, you know, and like, here's all these people. Well, that was where Brendan had met Jason. Yeah. You know, I mean, it was like all of these like really cool people that were in and around that brand and you start walking around and I was just like, Dana really helped me there. He was like, just go talk to the marketing guys. So I had to learn how to like, you know, walk into a booth and, you know, as the marketing director here and like talk to him and I didn't have anything to show anybody. I didn't have a business card or, you know, it's not like we have the phones like we do now, you know, it was like <laughs> instant communication, you know, like here's all the photos, here's all the stuff I've killed type of stuff. That's, that wasn't happening, but I had the sick booth. And so I'd walk in, you know, and I talked like with the guys at Hoyt and the guys at Easton and, you know, and I was like, I was like, oh, well, the stuff I, you know, if you, have you seen Sitka? And they're like, oh, that stuff looks amazing. And I was like, I'm the photographer, you know, that did all the stuff on their booth. And that just, that just really helped, you know. And what it did for Mystery Ranch was I learned, like, through that process of how you, you know, I kind of call it cross-marketing, right? If you go out and you're taking photos for Sitka, but you're wearing a Mystery Ranch pack and shooting a Hoyt bow or Gunworks gun or whatever, everybody wins, Right. So that was a really sweet opportunity because Mystery Ranch started showing up in ads and, you know, for other companies. And then, you know, the momentum started building so they could do ads. And I got to do a lot of the ad design and, you know, just got a chance to get our photos out there for a lot of people. And that just kind of just kind of steamrolled things, you know. And um, my wife, Katie, and I started our business, Seacat Creative, in 2009. And, you know, Dana was so cool. Dana and Renee were both so, like, so good to me. They were like, you can start your own thing. I maintained being the marketing director for Mystery Ranch. And I think I was able to maintain running my business and being the marketing director for three years, you know, for them. Before you ended up? Yeah, I've got to do both, you know. Like, I'd never asked for a raise, not once, you know, for Mystery Ranch. I had one review after the the eight dollars an hour and then they bumped me to like i think my salary was like forty two thousand bucks you know and that was plenty 
um, for me to be able to live off of and, and really do what you want to focus on, like becoming, you know, or starting your own business and, and getting out there and getting after it. And it was, uh, one of the real cool things was I came up with this idea on, you know, I always really, one of the things as a photographer, like if you, I mean, I always wanted to do something that was amazing. And the, the photographers that I looked up to, you know, were the type of photographers that were like war journalists, you know, I was like, Oh man, like they go out there, they capture their photos and they're able to send them back to wherever they are. Like at a moment's notice, you know, they're carrying around these satellite systems. So I did a bunch of research on what, you know, what systems you would have to take into the field to like be in the middle of nowhere and get a photo back, you know, to an editor somewhere. And I found out all the stuff and, and figured it out. And then I had this idea. I was going to work for Elk Foundation, Wild Sheep Foundation, and Mule Deer Foundation and follow a season, you know, and hunt all those species or go on hunts with people. Um, and I, like, started talking with people about it. And I came across a guy named Todd Smith, who at the time was the editor of Outdoor Life. Um, and he was like, that's a really great idea. And I was like, I think, I think, you know, it could be interesting. And, and, uh, he was like, I think I'm going to talk to our company. I, we would like to host that. So I started this program called the live hunt with outdoor life. And it was a really cool program because s still, this is like pre Facebook, you know, pre Instagram, pre online marketing outside of forums. And we basically started, you know, this live thing that I would log into every night throw out writing, throw out photos, throw out videos of everything that happened throughout the day. Typical season, you know, you're starting your season with a sheep hunt in the Northwest Territories and caribou, and then you're going somewhere in August, and then archery season starts rolling around in September, and stuff's happening in October, and whitetail in November, you know, we just did it all. The best thing that ever happened to me there was they didn't have money to, like, send sales guys out, you know, to go out and, you know, get the sponsorships that they needed so i had to have all those discussions i had to go to those companies and i had to like work on selling it and we won an award and this is kind of how i found out about like how you know lucrative that program was we won a min award which is an online award and we beat out like aol and time warner and some of these big like wow. time magazine and some of these big brands for this like excellence in online media with an idea and it was a black tie event in new york city and i didn't even get to go <laughs> you know my dad found out about it you know he had like a google alert set up on my name and was like did you realize the live hunt won this award and i was like no and in the article todd was todd got quoted as saying you know like we make 16 times more than we spend on this program and I was doing all the work and I was like, man, like they, I didn't have a hunt budget. I didn't have anything. This was all on your own, like do it yourself stuff. Like Gorilla. the hunts I could get in Montana, the on tags that I drew and like, I still haven't gotten lucky. I haven't drawn moose, sheep or goat here in Montana. It was all just the regular hunts that anybody can do. And, or, you know, people that I'd met that had, were going on sheep hunts or going on caribou hunts or that kind of stuff, you know, and they'd. They're like, sure, you can come along. That'd be great. You know, like everybody loves a good photo. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so I got to go on all these hunts. But what was, we were getting a lot of money for sponsorships. It was like $600,000 in companies that were paying because it was like, it was driving a ton of traffic to those companies. 
And that's what kind of made us think about starting our own business. I remember I had met my wife in, I met Katie in, um, in 2008. And I went back to Alaska on another Denali trip in the spring of 2008. And when I came back that summer, you know, it, it all happened pretty quick. Like before we knew it, you know, she was, she was living in, she was living in Bozeman and we had this like <laughs> moved her up here real quick. Yeah. She was living in, in Jackson, Wyoming. So it was a pretty obvious, like, you know, a really expensive spot to, you know, be able to come to Bozeman and your money goes a lot farther. But I remember watching her and she, you know, had her laptop and she was on this thing called Facebook. And I was like, what a waste of time, you know, like, you know, and I, I remember watching her scroll and one of the brands she had followed was like the gap or something. And I was like, wait a second, brands are on there. And she was like, yeah, brands are on here. And every single client that I had had from that live hunt, like, you know, hunting companies hadn't gotten on there yet. And I was like, ding. Well, that's, that's the perfect next step, right? We're taking the photos. The photos then get used for this new thing called social media. So why don't we, why don't we pitch our services to be able to manage Facebook pages, start them and manage them for all these companies. And so my original client list for, you know, managing Facebook, which happened in about a week, within a week I had like, you know, $300,000 in annual retainer based income, you know, for managing Facebook pages for some big companies, you know, like Leica, um, Gore-Tex, Sika Gear, Hilleberg Tents, you know, that was some of the starting companies. And that's like what kicked it off you know, for us and, and what we do now, you know, we learned along the way and, and, you know, started playing with video and, and getting a chance to do that kind of stuff. But yeah. I mean, Pioneering. We d- we did some cool things, I think, you know, and, and, uh, you know, I think we changed a little bit. What I'm most proud of is like when I first got into the hunting industry, it was all based on how big stuff was and the grip and grin. And that's what everything was. You know, and I was coming from taking pictures for Patagonia and Black Diamond where it was like you had to capture the image authentically. And that's what they that's why you love the Patagonia catalog. Whenever a Patagonia catalog comes out, I can remember being like, oh, wow. Like I didn't even look at the product. Yeah, I couldn't afford the product. I was just looking at the pictures. Right. And that's like I think that we kind of took that and and maybe it seems like everybody's doing it now. But at the time. You know, we kind of coined the phrase authentic hunting, you know, of the action that takes place, you know, and the process of hunting, not just the grip and grin, but like what happens before the animals harvested, after an animal is killed. And like what I love the most, obviously, I work for a pack company was the pack out photos. Right. That's like that's like the trophy. That's the gold for anybody that's backpack hunting. It's like that really heavy load with this animal, you know, on your back and like getting those photos was, was pretty amazing. I mean, we, in 2008, you know, I, I killed a bull and we got a, you know, a really, some really great pictures that my brother-in-law took Andrew and, you know, we, we made it on the cover of bugle with a, with a photo of a, you know, of a dead elk, you know, on a backpack, which was the first time elk foundation had ever ran, you know, a dead animal. And it's like, you know, like a skull, you know, blood still on it, like 
coming out of the backcountry, and it was it it's was as real as it gets. Yeah, you know, and that was a big change. You know, I think that people started to see that, and you know, the Mystery Ranch ads, the Sitka ads, the Hilleberg ads, the Leica ads, all those companies started like running those photographs, and I think it changed how people viewed it. And for you know, a lot of people that I knew that have gotten into hunting since, you know, they were like, that's kind of what changed it for me because it was like, it's not just about like every ad isn't this giant animal that's unattainable for most people it was like oh you're just going for a hike you know you're and i, I thought that that i thought that, that was a really cool thing and you know we kind of took that mindset into some video projects and you know had some success and you know we did a, a story um searching for west you know with some friends here in town um the company's no longer a company but it was called the helio collective and it was my buddy kina and my buddy chris and Sika had given me uh, money to document uh, an elk hunting season, and we were just going to make a video about a whole season, you know, and the search for, you know, a giant bull and, like, just see how it goes, right? Well, we'd gotten the money, like, I think we had had discussions, you know, about the budget, you know, in December, and, like, towards the end of December, like, of course we found out we were pregnant, and it was like, <laughs> wait a second, the timing here, you know, I think Wes' original due date was like September 1st, you know, it was like, oh, geez, like, we're going to have a baby, we're supposed to be filming this project, and then, like, I'm going to I'm gonna be a dad, right as, like, you know, my job is to be out in the field and hunt, and so we kind of changed the story, you know, to make it about, like, what it's like to become a father, and to have those pressures associated with you know, with hunting, you know, and, and, uh, you know, what that, what that looks like. Um, and, you know, we didn't, didn't harvest a bull on film, didn't, you know, didn't show an animal dying and for a couple of different reasons. And that's kind of an interesting, interesting story on the, on the reason why we didn't do that. It wasn't that we didn't, that there wasn't elk to be shot. You know, it was that I ended up finding a really cool spot that was really hard to get to and I didn't really feel like blowing it up you know because I knew the story would get a lot of attention and I knew that it like the quality you know we had helicopters and like we basically I the budget that we had the total budget that we had for that ended up after the fact being about about two hundred thousand dollars which at the time is an incredible budget right I think when Sika originally signed up, they gave us $20,000. And then after the whole first year of filming and showing what we had, we got Leica to come on and Gore came on. And Leica loved it, you know, and, and Leica came on in a big way, which allowed us to go out and shoot some of the helicopter shots and, you know, really tie it all together. But, um, yeah, I found this, I found this like, spot in the backcountry, and there was 26 branch antler bulls on one hillside. And it was like, if I show this, like, it's never going to be like that again. You know, I think in that spot since, you know, I've killed one 370 bull and another three over 350. You know, so the place is still good. But the story in and of itself was, you don't have to kill one, you know. And sometimes you don't. And I think that that, that was different, you know. And... It's a way still, different message than what had always been portrayed in the past. Yeah, I still get comments. Um, <clears throat> you know, I still get comments on a probably monthly basis on that video, and that was 
you know, West is about to turn nine years old, you know? So that video, I think changed like the quality, like the hunting industry hadn't had a film that was that beautiful yet. Um, you know, and now it's more common, you know, those types of cameras are readily available for folks. And I think we've been on the cutting edge of a few things and, you know, we're still learning, you know, there's still a lot of things that are happening and, you know, it's a cool, yeah, it's a cool time. So in all of that, how important has it been for you and your wife building this company together, you know, and when you left mystery ranch and you're going full bore, full throttle, um, how important has it been having her support and her backing, you know, and her trust that everything, you know, what you're doing is what we need to be doing. And yeah, I mean, well, like it's, it's more than just backing and definitely more than just support. Like we, she quit like a, you know, a development job, you know, for the museum of the Rockies to start this thing. We like dove in together you know, to like start it because we wanted to have that lifestyle of like getting a chance to work together and be together. And when we first started doing it, you know, Katie was on all the trips. Like she went everywhere outside of the sheep hunts or that stuff where, you know, I was going on those. She was on every single trip taking photographs. Like, you know, we were, we were definitely a team, you know, in the field. And since, you know, we got lucky, you know, we got we had some good advisors and, and hired some really outstanding employees, you know, people that push the bar, you know, guys that, you know, are just, you know, incredible, you know, content creators and, and really, really smart people. And, you know, what has happened, like it, it takes like it takes a lot to be able to be gone as much as I'm gone. You know, now we have three kids and, and a, a business that's, you know, even in today's age is doing really well. Um, but it, it takes like the support and understanding that this isn't just something that I love to do. It's something that I have to do, you know, to be able to like one, you know, that's my job, but two, like to sustain, you know, the person that I am, like, I need that adventure, you know, the last, you know, however many months, you know, with COVID has been really challenging because I'm here, which is fantastic. And I'm able to, you know, work from home and, you know, do that. And I'm with my family all the time, but I'm missing that adventure, you know? Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I was like, Oh, this is great. I get to be with my kids every day. And, and I love that. But I also think that when you spend time away, you come back into stuff with a renewed sense of energy, you know? And I think I'm a better dad when I get to go on the adventures. Cause mm -hmm. you know, you think about it during the time where we were like stay at home ordinance, you know, I missed a a steelhead trip. I missed a youth turkey trip with my boys to Ohio. You know, I missed a trip to Kodiak Island. You know, there's a bunch of different trips that, you know, came through that we couldn't do, you know, and you, su you suddenly realize I'm not the same person unless I get a chance to get outside and go do those things. So, and the support that I have at home is fantastic. You know, my, my wife is unbelievable and we've got really great kids. I think that helps out too, you know, that they understand but I'm also getting them into it, you know, and they, you know, they're out, you know, fly fishing and, and, you know, hunting and doing all the things that I got to do as a kid. Um, so I think they understand, you know, it's like, they know, you know, this year I got a, I drew a great Nevada deer tag and they're like, Oh, great. You know, like, you know, when are we going to start shooting our bows and get ready? You know? And like, <laughs> do you think you'll like, Cause I usually invest a lot of time. If I draw a good tag, you know, like I drew a sweet elk tag in Montana, 
a few years back and I spent 70 days, 30 days scouting and 40 days on one bull, you know, so they can draw out. And this, I think I have about a month of time on this tag and, you know, deer are a little bit different than, than bulls. You know, you can, you got to get them done early, you know, usually or they'll just disappear and turn into ghosts. And, but West's birthday is, you know, in the middle, like the 19th of August and the season opens on the 10th. And he's like, you might miss my birthday. You know, that's an early, that's an early hunt. You know, it's like, I'll be back for sure. If I don't, if I don't get the buck killed before the 18th, you know, I'll, I'll be, I'll be driving back to make it to your birthday. You know, there's, it ebbs and flows, you know, and suddenly you're a dad and, you know, my timing was always really off, you know, with but conception, <laughs> you know, I've got a West birthday is, you know, at the end of August Towns' birthday is the first, you know, first part of September, you know, it's like, you know, I kind of, you know, which, you know, puts, makes sense, you know, like about December, once I was done with the season was when, you know, conception was happening, I guess. So mm-hmm. it was like, it made sense to like get back into the swing of things, but I could be gone. <laughs> Is that what they call it? Well, yeah, you know, you just, if you're gone as much as I am, you know, it takes a while to get back come, into the swing of it, come back into things. But yeah, um, yeah, I can be, you know, in any given season, I start around July 15th and pretty much the way it is now you can hunt year round and go all over the place but yeah i try to keep it to you know starting in july and then you know being done by about the 15th of january and then you got trade shows and all that kind of stuff show and season but you kind of avoid most shows i've done that recently mm-hmm. you know which has been a really good thing you know our business like i don't have to go to the trade shows as much anymore like it's a we've been around for 10 years. Like I communicate with all those companies on a daily or weekly basis anyways. And so I just don't need to be there. I don't need to, a lot of going to the shows, depending on the shows, like some like wild sheep or Western hunter, those are great shows to go to, right? Because Mm -hmm. you get to see all your guide friends, like from all over the place, especially the Canadian guides that you don't normally get to see, you know, and wild sheep's the best one. I've missed that the last few years hopefully i'll be there next year um and western hunter i really like western hunter for that reason too you get to see a lot of folks but shot ata nra you know there's there's just there's a lot of them Mm -hmm. you know and and i used to go to every one of them you know there was a time when you know i was driving the mystery ranch trailer you know around the country all winter long for those trade shows setting up the booth and doing all that and it's a great way to meet people you know, and it's a great way to form connections. Um, but at this point, you know, you're just only, you're limited, yeah. you know, and if I'm gone for six or eight weekends, you know, in the winter, I'm missing a lot of time with my kids. We love to ski, you know, and if I don't get my kids out in the winter, you know, the winter in Montana can be nine months long, Yeah. you know, so if you're not getting out and doing stuff, you know, they'll go stir crazy. And with three kids, it's a, it's a full-time job with two parents, mm-hmm. you know, so I try to like, as the kids have gotten a little bit older, you know, I'm just, I just don't, if I don't have to be gone, you know, especially in the why winter, be gone? why be gone? You know, I'd, I'd rather go skiing with them a couple of days and, you know, be around. So how is it for you as a dad getting to pass along the tradition to your children? I would of say fly fishing and hunting and instilling outdoor <clears throat> ethics. And it's super cool. You know, like the, the rod that I caught my first fish on, on a fly rod, you know, west caught his first fish on 
you know, last summer. Towns just recently caught his first fish on a fly rod, same fly rod. You know, on we just did a 5,000-mile road trip for 20 days, you know, with my crew. And Towns just – West had a great night, you know, on this river in Pennsylvania. Caught nine fish with his fly rod, and, and Towns was like, tomorrow I'm going to catch my first fish on that fly rod. And he did it. You know, we went out, and he caught two brook trout on the fly rod. And th- nothing makes me more excited than, like, getting to see those guys get after it. And they're doing things I never got to do. Like, I've, I've never, ever killed a turkey, ever. I think West has four gobblers, and Towns has three, <laughs> you know. And I, I have a really great friend, Bobby Warner, who's got this awesome farm in Ohio. And he set it up for his family and kids. And so there's all these great spots for the kids to hunt. And there's a youth-only turkey season. There's a youth-only whitetail season. And I love hunting whitetails. But I love, like, helping my sons, you know, and my daughter eventually. You know, she's only three. But, like, getting those guys on on animals is is incredible, you know. And just, like, being in the blind when stuff happens with them is <laughs> is so great. And we've had so many adventures. And... I think what's super cool about, you know, hunting and fishing with the technology that we have now, you know, and is that they, they have all these adventures. I don't have photos of my first fish, you know, I don't have like photos. Of, there's so many moments that are missed, you know, just based on when I was born and the technology that was available. Now, like I've got so many images of my kids, like all their first things are documented. And I think that a lot, you remember it. You know, they like it's stuck in their mind. Like Wes will be like, "Do you remember the time that I did this or the that?" And I'm like, "Yeah, you know, I remember that." And we'd look at the photos, you know, of it. And I think that's a really cool aspect to it because you just get to see stuff, you mm-hmm. know, and you get a you can live those memories. And I think at this point now, I'm still a few years away from them. There's places I could take them, you know, and I've got I've got great friends that are outfitters in New Mexico, you know, GT Nun. You know, and Cori Silva, you know, in uh, in New Mexico are, are awesome friends. And they could get youth muzzleloader tags, you know, and hunt elk. I, I just, you know, I, I want them to be, I want them to have to earn it a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, I want them to, like, work their way up. You know, I don't want, like, West first elk to be, you know, 380-inch bull, you know. like <laughs> Ruined that, for life. Yeah. I mean, I think... I think like anything, you know, if like they start off and they, they've done that, you know, and they're both of them have killed, you know, really nice whitetail bucks um, in Ohio. But they like we made them shoot does first, you know, like get to that point. You know, you don't I don't want them to think that it's all it always has to be big or I don't want them putting inches on stuff right now. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that that's something that you eventually might get to. That's what happened to me was like, you know, I started chasing really mature animals. But I think when you're a kid, like, success is really important. It's like, you know, we go places to fish, and, like, I want them to catch fish. Yeah. You know, that's important. When we go on a turkey hunt, I want them to get one or get an opportunity, you know, and that's been cool. For you as a hunter, what was it like in that transition of going from, you know, filling tags to deciding that you were going to chase for quality of animal instead of, filling tags i think guiding had a lot to do with that because 
there was a lot of pressure coming from these these clients that were coming out to hunt in Montana. You know, and we had average Joe clients, guys that saved for 10 years to go on a $5,000 elk hunt, you know, that were like hardworking guys that were in the unions in Pittsburgh or, you know, people that were putting it all out there for this experience. And they, they wanted the best animal that they could get, right? And, like, we were hunting in at the tail end of the heyday and Gardner and, like, you know, you could count on probably killing a good six point. And I think that that for me, like I started to put other people's expectations into the hunting. It wasn't just like, okay, go find an elk and then you're done. You know, it was like, try to find a good one. Try to find something that these people are going to be stoked to have on their wall for the rest of their lives. And that's what it was like, Mm -hmm. you know? So suddenly I started like getting to that point of like, Hmm, you know, like I want to harvest mature animals. And then I was limited in the amount of time I had. Right. Cause I'm out guiding all season long. Um, but I think like one thing that did it for me, it was like, was I found, you know, I used to pick a lot of sheds and I used to like roll around the woods and like find them. And I found a, a really great bull, you know, and I was like, I tried to match a set and only found one side and it was this beautiful six point. And I knew him, I knew where he came from. I knew where he lived. I knew where he rutted. I knew like where he came out if he did come out of the park i gotta watch him a lot um you know and it just so happened like i was able to kill him on the last day of the season after all my clients were done he happened to show up and i killed him and he i mean great six point like unbelievable bull it's the only elk i have mounted um but i i got him scored you know i'd never done that before and i i got him scored and he grossed 383 and a half and netted 373 and a half and i was you know boone and crock at all times 375 and i was bummed i was like oh man i didn't make the book and that's the only animal that i've had officially scored since and it hasn't changed my mindset on wanting to hunt mature animals but it's had my mind change on like what i deem a success is you know, because for a moment, like it took me a little bit to snap out of that, you know, of, oh, I didn't make the book. You know, I was like, it hit you hard. I was like, oh, you were super stoked. And then you were bummed. And then I was bummed for maybe an hour or something. Yeah. But I was like, you can't like you can't value an animal's life or an experience based on the number of inches, you know. And I mean, I sense like I've I've harvested some some great big animals, you know, and a lot of. A lot of them, I feel like in certain places, like, you know, it might, it might benefit people to have them scored. You know, like I have a mountain caribou that's, you know, killed with my bow that hasn't been officially scored, but like people that know what they're doing have scored it. And I've scored it a bunch of times and it's 416 inches <laughs> and the outfitter is like, man, you gotta, you gotta strip the velvet on this thing, get it officially scored. It's a, it would be a big deal for that outfitter, you know, because he could say that, you know, that one it came would be, from his concession his concession you know and that one would be very very high in the book but that book doesn't matter to me anymore so i didn't do that but i made sure that like you know i told everybody where it came from and like that he still has the pictures up in his booth and like all that (laughs) kind of stuff was a pretty amazing animal but it hasn't like i still score everything that i killed so i have an understanding you know and like the group of people that i run with in the hunting industry like it's all tight taped and like, you know, you don't really talk about score too much 
outside of the little group, you know, you're like, this is what this scored, you know? And I think that that's kind of cool. Um, just because you don't really publicize it too much, but I th we have goals, you know, and like now it's, I know exactly what it takes to feed my family for a year. You know, I it's basically, funny how you figured that out too, huh? Yeah. You know, you got it, like, and the kids are eating a ton, you know? And so it's just like, <laughs> you start to realize it's, it takes like two antelope, two deer and an elk. And that like feeds my whole family for a year. Um, we stay away from buying beef still, you know, to this day, just, we just don't need it. Um, I do, I do get a bunch of axis deer, you know, from my buddy Jake Muse and, and his company. And, and so like, that's what it takes, you know? And if both West and towns are going to shoot whitetails like every year, I don't, there's our two deer, right? So I don't necessarily need to kill a deer mm -hmm. with mule deer specifically. I'm really picky. You know, so it's got to be, it's got to be an old buck that's, you know, a really good old deer, you know, because outside of like the high alpine deer in Colorado, like at least the mule deer in Montana, they just, I don't love, I don't love the taste, you know, of deer that's eating sagebrush all the time. I mean, you just have to try a flip-flop and it'll change your, your opinion on that in a heartbeat. Well, I mean, I have had a flip-flop. That was of a desert sheep though. Which you can't go wrong with desert sheep. You can't go wrong with. <laughs> I mean, you want to talk about a lifetime opportunity on a flip flop. Yeah, that's for sure, for sure. And I think that's the that's the deal, right? Like, if it's old and it's lived a long time, and it's 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 a challenge, you know, it's something that's hard. Like, I'm into it for sure, and you know, it's all about the quality of the experience for me. Is like getting a good hunt, and I'm at this point, like, I've gotten to go on so many trips with so many people like i've gotten to be on you know i think i'm over 30 different sheep hunts i've had two sheep tags myself and i've killed two dolls and those were great experiences i just love going on hunts mm -hmm. you know i love going with people that have tags yeah. like i'm just as excited like to go on somebody's hunt as i am to like have the tag to a point right like you know if i have a really great tag i'm I'm pretty stoked. You're pretty jacked. Yeah, for yeah. sure. And, and, you know, that's, uh, I think that part of being a photographer is like, if you're not stoked to be there, like you're not having any fun, like you're not an asset to the camp. Right? Why are you there? And, you know, getting to go on all the sheep hunts and, and do all that, like gave me a love for sheep hunting and, you know, gave me an opportunity to go on some of those trips and, you know, it's, it's pretty fun. There's no place I'd rather be than hunting sheep or in the elk woods really. Right. So in every podcast, there's there's a, a Dead Eye Minute, right? Dead Eye Outfitters, sponsors of the podcast. They make hats, T-shirts, hoodies. I feel like I need to change up what I say because I always say the same exact thing about what their products are. But that's what their products are. They're great guys, wonderful, wonderful people. Um, definitely have changed my life in a lot of ways and, and helped me get to the point where I'm at now. So my question for you with the Dead Eye Minute would be what is it like being a pioneer of social media style hunting and uh, being a curator of an immense amount of the hunting industry to, to have gotten it to where it is today. Um, watching the new guys come in and the new guys coming up through the ranks and, and all that kind of stuff. You know, and, and I mean, I'm extremely appreciative of our friendship, you know, because 
you know, you've allowed me the ability to pick your brain a little bit here and there. And, you know, I, I am forever grateful for the opportunity to always, you know, for you to be able to lend near to me, you know, but I, I always wonder it's got to be so different because social media has changed so much since Facebook and, you know, with the birth of Instagram and where Instagram has gone in the last five years for the hunting world. And there's been so much change and so much evolution. And what has that been like for you, you know, kind of being a bricklayer, you know, to, to now seeing where it is now? Oh, I think, I think I'm, I'm proud of, you know, obviously all the people that I've worked with or influenced, you know, to, to be in this space, you know, I think anybody, you know, if you have the drive and desire, like you can, you can be great at anything, you know, which means more competition, you know, there's more competition, but I have to imagine that there's a whole bunch of people when I came onto the scene and started doing what I was doing that were like, fuck this guy. Yeah. I mean, like <laughs> they probably felt that way, you yeah. know? And I think it, life's too short to like really get too worked up about that kind of stuff. Like I'm, I'm proud that we've influenced, like, I think for the better, the type of imagery. Now, the storytelling of imagery. For sure. The storytelling, like, all that kind of stuff comes with it. I don't, like, I'm not, I shouldn't say this. I own a company that specializes in creating content and managing social media or advising companies on, you know, how to do it, you know, and what levers to pull and, you know, how much money to put behind this or that. You know, my own mindset is, like, I don't really post very much. Like in a big year, I might post six times, right? <laughs> I don't have a, I don't have a ton of followers. Like I, I don't really worry about that. But I don't feel like that's your goal. Is it's not, I'm not, I'm like, and I'm as bad as anybody else. You know, I'm paying attention and I'm watching the stuff, the guys that are posting a lot and that kind of stuff, they build up massive followings. And I think what has happened is the industry looks at that as a, as a way for, you know, they become influencers right and there's pros and cons to that you know i think and you know i'm not really in that world outside i manage influencers for brands i manage ambassador teams we do that kind of stuff and part of it like we don't necessarily pick people just based on the number of followers you know it's got to be the quality of that individual and the quality of the message yeah. you know and i think that that's that's key and that's really important as people decide you know who they're going to get behind or who they're going to follow or all that like what are they really pushing what's really what's really out there are they really a good person like you know i think yeah we've been so fortunate with our business to have really talented people that work for us and they can't work for you for forever right they're going to go out they're going to start their own thing i'm really proud of all those folks you know and it's i feel like if they can go out and get paid to do you know, what they were doing with us, that means the industry is moving in a good way, you know, and the industry is like responding to that type of imagery, you know, and those type of hunters, I think that that's super cool. And I, I mean, like we've changed the game really in a lot of aspects, you know, and I agree with that statement 100%. I mean, I feel really fortunate. I don't think there's a lot of people out there, a lot of companies out there that could go you know, and make a transition like we've done in the past couple of years to be, you know, work with Sika for, geez, 14 years or 16 years, however long we did that, you know, and then like immediately switch gears and get a chance to work with Kuyu, 
You know, that's a, I think that that's a really special thing, you know, and part of the reason why we're able to do that is we never pick sides and we never hated on anybody that wore a different camouflage, you know, like I had a great relationship with Jason, like, you know, for, it was awesome, you know, like the one story I tell when it, when it comes to Jason is, you know, like I got to work with him for a long time when he was, when he was at Sitka. And when he started Kuyu, you know, he was going through his garage and, you know, he found a set of little kids, Optifade open country gear that were made for cash that a friend of mine, really good friend of mine, Richard Sibrel, who's, you know, one of the best product designers in the world had made specifically for cash. And Jason sent them to me and with this great note that was like, if anybody over there should have these, you know, you should, and I want Wes to wear these, which that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. He's sending like a content creator, you know, and sick of athlete, a set of gear that I'm going to then take pictures of my kid wearing it. That's going to be used for marketing for the his number one competition. There's number one competitor that told me a lot about that guy's character and, and what he was into. And he would always, every time we would release a film or anything, he'd reach out and be, and he watched it and was like, that's awesome that's awesome you know and he, he'd always say if i can ever afford to work with you i'd love to well it speaks volumes to his kindness yeah and i think it speaks it speaks to like our ability to like the the camo world in the hunting industry is volatile mm-hmm. you know there, there's a lot going on between all those brands and i think it speaks a lot to you know that they would want to work with us mm-hmm. you know and you know, we were getting we were getting that thing started. You know, before his passing, and it slowed down a little bit. You know, um, you know after that, but we're we're hitting stride, and I'm stoked to be where we are. Yeah. You know, and and I feel like we're getting a chance to do some of those things with Kuyu, and there's a whole bunch of great people. Like I met you at, at Mountain Academy. Yeah. Right. I think in the Dead Eye booth. No, no, working there. I was using the, I was at the Mountain Academy. I was doing the West Coast Archery booth. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And like. We met there and then again at the house later in the afternoon. And then you did a flip-flop for everybody that evening. Yeah. At the, at the store. And I, and I think that's really cool. There's so many, and I've had friends, you know, I have so many friends. Like I've been friends with GT Nun a long time, you know, and he's always worn Kuyu. Like, and I was always limited on where we could go based on what people were wearing, you know, like you can't go hunting with an outfitter that wore a Kuyu that like, how are you going to get pictures and that kind of stuff? And so it's really opened me up to all these relationships and friendships that I've had for years. And a lot of those guys have never had their story told, you know, and it's just like, like suddenly there's a thousand stories that we could go tell. I think that's really cool, you know. That and like, I love that about what you guys do, you know, and putting the story behind the outfitter, you know, is huge. It's so huge. And Kuyu did a fantastic job as they started of being open and transparent. And their relationships with guidance and outfitters is the best. Mm-hmm. You know, like every, I'm not everyone, but most of the top tier outfitters, you know, ran Kuyu. You know, and it was always, I can remember getting on a plane going up to Norman Wells and the NWT for a sheep hunt, you know, and it was like, look around and like everybody on the plane is wearing Kuyu. <laughs> and you're the Sika guy? Uh, and, uh, we're the only people wearing Sika. And that was early. Like people bought into it. Um, 
it's a cool business model. It's a bunch of really great people associated with the brand, bunch of really great employees at the brand, you know, from top down, just a bunch of solid folks. And mm -hmm. it, I mean, it's always a big, crazy transition to like, you know, make a switch like that. Uncomfortable, and like, I'm sure, a little bit. Well, just to like growth. Uh, scary too, you know, like at the time, you know, we had a bunch of employees and like we're walking away from a really big scope of work you know, with, a, with Sika and like kind of jumping into the unknown a little. Um, and it, you know, I can remember like my first, my first trip to Kuyu headquarters, you know, it was like, they kind of like kept me sequestered in this office for a little bit. And like people walk by and look in and they're like, that's the sick guy. Like, you know, and, it's like, <laughs> and so it took a little, it took a little bit, but like, luckily, you know, kind of like our conversation, people respected what we did. And I think, you know, if you get a chance to like sit and talk with someone for a while, you learn a lot. And you know, I got a chance to do that with everybody. And, you know, that first like mountain Academy, was like, you know, definitely, you know, people were, people were kind of looking at me funny. And, you know, I think, I think we've won some people over and, and I really look forward to, you know, the future there and all the cool things we're going to get a chance to do. And last season was really the first season, like, you know, following people in the field and, you know, it was awesome. You mm -hmm. know, and, and, you know, we spent a bunch of time with you guys and the Kika crew and, you know, guys I've known for a long time that like, I've known Jake Franklin a long time and we've seen each other at wild sheep and that's all the time we ever got to interact. You know, we got to do a couple of real good long hunts and, you know, that's, that's what friendship takes, right? You got to spend time with people and spending time with people on the Hills on a hunt, like <laughs> is about as good as it gets, yeah. you know, you really get to know them and right. it's pretty sweet. So so what was it like for you on the sheep capture? Oh, um, conservation direct. Yep. Well, I would say like it was twofold, right? Like one, I was there to document it from a, you know, photography standpoint, um, myself and Matt Forsyth and you were taking a bunch of shots too, but to, just to be like, it was, it was really hard to be there working when everybody else was like getting to live a dream, right? You just don't like, I've been on a lot of captures and a lot of, a lot of stuff with, with sheep and, and, and other animals as well. You don't get a chance to get your hands on them, you know? And like to be a part of it, to actually be like drawing blood or like putting on, you know, radio collars or like be a part of it. And like, I think, you know, I shot pretty hard, you know, the, the first day, you know, with the team from North Dakota, like I, I shot the whole time. And the second day it was like about midday. It was like, okay, I'm getting my hands on some of these animals. Like I want to, I want to be able to be a part of it. That was a really cool thing, you know, and just something that kind of the first of its kind or without a doubt, the first time any, any company's done something like that. Um, I thought it was super cool. You know, three brand new sheep herds, you know, established that the what's the Antelope Island one is pretty incredible, right? Because that whole population of Antelope Island, which is the feeder for all the Utah, you know, bighorn sheep herds was wiped out from pneumonia. Mm -hmm. So like the fact that we took like sheep from Montana and put them on Antelope Island and like the genetics, you know, here going down there, like, you know, who knows, maybe I'll draw a Utah sheep tag someday. And like one of those animals, you know, will be there. Or maybe my kids will, or all the Utah residents that are going to be there that are going to get a chance down the road because of that, you know, that's pretty special. You know, North Dakota, like 
sheep going to places that they haven't been in 100 years. 200, I think. You know, that's incredible. Like, that was a, yeah, that was one of the cooler things I've gotten a chance to do. Yeah. You know, and you could just see it in everybody's faces. <laughs> you know, everybody was so happy and so amazed that they got a chance to be on it, right? Yeah. Like, that was a that was a cool thing. I'm, I feel really lucky that I got to be there. Right. That so was re- awesome. Remarkable time. So, you already mentioned you have a, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, a uh, Nevada mule deer tag coming up. Uh, what else do you have planned for this year? Man, well, I'm still finalizing, you know, like what we're going to be doing in the field. You know, a lot of it depends on, you know, where companies want us to be. Um, for From my perspective, for like my hunts, like, you know, I know I've got this Nevada tag that I've, you know, put, I've been putting in for a long time to draw the tag and drew the tag. And, and that gets kicked off on August 10th. So I'll start scouting, you know, August 1st, go down there 10 days before and start scouting. And, you know, hopefully, fingers crossed, you know, like get an animal killed within the first like eight days of the season, come back up to for West's birthday. Um, and then I'll probably go to Colorado, I think. Um, my buddy Bobby Warner, when everybody, whenever somebody gets a good tag, like we, we help each other out, you know, and he's like, he actually drew a great tag in New Mexico for antelope and he turned it back in. He's like, that's right during your deer hunt in Nevada turn it back in that's a good friend he's rolling to he's rolling to nevada to like help out there and then he's got a deer tag in colorado and i won't even get a tag you know i'll just typically like um i'll buy a landowner tag in colorado and hunt mule deer down there but i won't get a tag because i'll have had a hunt for mule deer and then i'll go and help him on that and we'll see like you know randy ulmer is hunting colorado i might tag along with him for a few days um, in Colorado, I know GT Nunn drew a Nevada elk tag, and I'll go down and do that with him. Um, that's towards the end of November, but phenomenal adventure. Yeah, all of that, all that stuff will be great. I've got um, good buddy Willie Hedinger's got um, a great deer tag in Kansas, so I'm gonna go out there and do that with him. I'm gonna get to spend some time with Mark Wimpy. I'll probably get a chance to hunt with Burns, you know, and do some trips with him. Um, he's got an elk tag in Wyoming and a goat tag in Montana that he's been putting in for for 29 years. <laughs> so there's just like, at this point for me, it's like I can be busy the entire season. You know, some guaranteed things that'll happen. Obviously, that Nevada tag. I'll be in Ohio, you know, with the two boys, you know, for the youth deer season for sure. You know, West really wants to, you know, kill a deer with his bow which would be his first with his bow and and he's been you know practicing and getting ready for that so um that'll be a guarantee um jim's got we're hoping to get jim on a hunt and he's got his family is from wisconsin where he grew up his dad's got a place there you know and try to hunt a whitetail there with him which would be super cool to kind of switch gears and you know take some pictures of him and and see him you know try to get his first archery whitetail i think that'd be really special mm-hmm. um hunts with my dad you know we've got antelope here in montana every year we do together um doing a steelhead trip i i was on the waiting list for 16 years for this lodge up in northern bc where my grandpa and my dad went in like 1985 and a couple years ago they finally gave me the call 
was like, hey, you're up. You want to come? And I was like, yep, I'm coming. I'm on my way. Um, and so my dad and I do that every fall. So I'll do that um, with my dad in October. Yeah, I mean, the fall goes by so quick. You know, it it's like we're miles and miles and miles. Yeah, we're almost to July. And I mean, it's just July is really when things start for me. And so it's like July, boom, and ding, 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 ding. And pretty soon it's like it's january 15th you're like wow where did time go <laughs> right you know but then you're planning all all over again you know so starts again yeah it's gonna be a busy year but right hopefully we get to spend some time outside again i'm i'm looking forward to it if we do yeah you know that's a goal on my list this year is to spend some time in camping on a mountain with you and well I, hopefully it'll happen yeah i got plenty of you can never have too many friends when you have a Nevada deer tag. So, I know. <laughs> you know, guys get on the glass. Like, It'll be a good trip. For sure. I'm looking forward to that one. For sure. And then um, last, I wanted to ask you about, um, and I, I just found out more about this the other day when I was with you for lunch, um, the Maui Nui. If you can speak to that right now or... Yeah, I think I can. Um, I'm not sure when this is going live. Do you know when's this podcast going live? Uh, probably not till August. Yeah. So um, if this goes live in August, like we'll we will have like launched um, the Fresh Box program for a company that I'm affiliated with uh, called Maui Nui Venison, and, and it's a really really cool company. My buddy Jake Muse, um, who lives he lives on the Big Island, and basically has invested his whole life his, like his whole mission has been about access deer in hawaii and what people don't realize is that these animals are invasive species to hawaii they were introduced um hawaiians love them fantastic mm -hmm. it's the um it's the healthiest red meat on the planet which is a really cool thing fantastic animal to hunt but in a lot of areas, they're causing some pretty severe devastation of the native ecosystem. They eat anything in sight, like, and the numbers are crazy. Well, and it's similar to what we what we saw in Yellowstone with the elk herd. Yeah, it's, it'd be like if that, like, in the amount of space, it'd be like if the northern Yellowstone ecosystem had a million. That's insane. A million elk in it, right? Like, that's what it is on these islands. You know, I so think... it's amplified. It's amplified completely, and, you know, they're... They're affecting the water quality and, like, what's happening, you know, with erosion of sediment. Like, old-growth koa trees, which are, you know, koa trees are a very special tree to Hawaiian culture. Um, you know, it's where the, like, native dugout canoes were made out of. And, like, their ships they sailed from island to island or, you know, bigger, you know, ocean adventures, you know, were koa trees. Well, like, these deer have come in. And they're eating all the shrubs, all the small plants, all the seedlings for these koa trees. So these areas, it almost looks like a golf course, you know. It's like these beautiful green grass areas with like one koa tree here and then ten that have fallen down. You know, and it used to be completely lush. Well, what happens is when these deer come in and they eat everything and there's no undergrowth, like when it rains, like... The koa trees can't soak up all the water, right? The ones that are left. And so what happens is that just rushes down the mountain. Sediment, like, gets carried all the way to the ocean. The reef system in and around the ocean where it comes out gets polluted with sediment. 
um, you know, and a lot of bad things happen, right? And so, mm -hmm. like, what Jake is trying to do, and he's worked, he's done a really good job of working with, you know, in Hawaii, there's a lot of really big ranches, you know, really big cattle ranches, and people that really care about the environment, you know, and he's working with, like, um, the Leeward Haleakala um, Watershed District, and that partnership to help plant trees, and then he's working from the top of the mountain to the reef system. He's working with all the different organizations to help like fix this problem. So what they figured out how to do is they go into certain these certain areas and they m actually manage the population for the ranchers. What he was able to do was able to convince and like get a partnership with the USDA, which is insane to me. It is. To where a USDA inspector comes along on the harvest. Everything's done at night. Everything's done, you know, with FLIR technology. Like, it's all, I mean, it, it's pretty amazing. You know, I think I have, like, eight nights of doing this. And you be, you get started at, like, 9 p.m. And you, like, stop, like, at the, like, at 6 o'clock in the morning when it's getting light. You're, like, heading back to camp to, like, sleep all day. But he'll go out and, you know... As, he only takes as many as an area, you know, can take off of it. You know, he doesn't over-harvest, um, which is really cool. And he's done some really cool programs, you know, giving away meat and giving away stuff to, like, people in need in Hawaii as well. And it's a, it's a cool program. I think on a, on a big night, like a max night, that the animals that he can harvest based on USDA, like, um, rules and regulations, I think is, like, 35 deer and he's got mobile slaughtering units that he brings in close to the areas where they're doing the nighttime harvesting and i've never seen a more efficient crew like the animals like they have to be like the usd inspector is actually looking at a screen he's like a director and he's sitting there and he sees a live view through the scope of the rifle on the guy that's on the top of the of the tacoma like they've got these shooting rigs built there and he's looking at a live screen view of the animals and he sees what the shooter sees. So they only shoot at animals that are not moving and like are like perfectly placed. And I think they've harvested like 16,000 animals. Wow. And they've only, I think only twice did they shoot them like where they had to shoot them a second time. Like, type of thing and all of them have been inspected by the usda perfect so they have to they have to shoot them in the head and then that animal gets an ear tag from the usda inspector it comes back it goes to the mobile slaughtering unit everything is like as clean as stuff as you've ever seen and everything gets used like hides get used like all pieces and parts of everything gets used um and then you're left with this like beautiful animal like this gorgeous red healthy looking meat that's hanging there a usda veterinarian comes and checks like all like the internal organs for that animal it's like that goes down the line with like here's the here's a bucket with all that stuff in it a vet checks all of it checks everything like takes tests then it gets stamped and once it gets stamped um you know they uh they're able you know sell them for human cons consumption um legally across the united states yeah across the like 
and it's been small. Like they've been doing it for like 10 years, but it's just starting to ramp up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're, they're partnering. They're going to do a, a program with Patagonia provisions and do some sticks, um, you know, some jerky sticks and, and that kind of thing. And some snack sticks, you know, with Patagonia, uh, which is really cool. It's a great opportunity, but, um, the big thing is going to be the fresh box program Mm -hmm. and that program you'll be able to order on a four week or six week time. You're able to order and you get like ground stew chunks, um, sirloin and rib chops, you know, and, and access deer has gotten really popular, like hunting, you know, you've seen Rogan and all those guys do it, you know, and Remy's been doing it and all these people with a lot of followers have been doing it. So you see them, right. And like a, a rib rack, you know, on an axis deer is like the most beautiful piece of game, you know, like, <laughs> and you cook it up. And the, the cool thing about the venison is it's, it's, it doesn't really have, it's not, it's not as, as, you know, gamey a taste as like antelope or mule deer. It's not quite as gamey as like an elk, you know? So it's like right in the middle, like it almost tastes like really, really good beef, you know, but it's way healthier for you. Mm-hmm. you know, and it's, uh, that's taken off. And so subscription boxes, you know, can show up, to, you know, to your door, which for in today's day and age, like a lot of people, if they can't like source the meat on their own, if you know, you're like doing something that's great for the environment and for your body, it's a win-win, right? All day long. And like the, I mean, mothers everywhere, like my kids, they love wild game, but if you put like antelope, like elk in front of them and axis deer like they're going to go to axis deer every single time and it's like mini tomahawks <laughs> when we cook them up here at our house you know and so they each get like you know a few of these little like rib chops and they just go to town and like they crush it and we just know we're putting really really great food into our kids bodies which is absolutely priority number one yeah especially with what we're going through right now with covid um you know the ability to have something like that come to your doorstep and it's got this great story behind it. I mean, I think it's I think it's going to do great things. I know it's great doing great things it's for revolutionary, the environment, man. the environment in Hawaii, and um, yeah, I'm excited to see where that one goes. Yeah, right on, Mark. Well, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. You know, this was awesome, and I look forward to cooking with you tomorrow. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Sweet, that sounds awesome. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for tuning in to the show, folks. If you'd like to check us out online, our website is www.theflipflopguide.co. You can find out all the information you need to have your own flip-flop in your own backyard. We encourage this, and we'd love to see this happening in every backyard across America. You can purchase our sauces that have been cranking out flip-flops from my grandfather since the 1960s. If you had trouble filling your tags this year, we also have available on our website Maui Nui Axis Deer Legs. They're 100% USDA approved and ready for your consumption. Don't forget to check us out on Instagram at the Flip Flop Guy. We hope you have a great day. Thanks for tuning in and don't forget to smash that subscribe button.